Miracy. I'm a human being who wants to walk with human beings. I'm a human being that goes, I'm willing to get into the messy with you. And that's my message to the world. And that's how I'm going to run my business. And if that isn't good enough, then that just means you're not my market. Hello, I'm Katie Valentine, and you're listening to Soul Savvy Business. I'm a soul-minded spiritual entrepreneur, a Christian minister, and a New Testament scholar. But don't let that scare you. I support all paths to the divine, and I use tools like chakras, dreams, and intuition to get there. On this podcast, we explore the intersection of business and spirituality. What do I mean by that? Too often, we separate our business selves from our spiritual selves. But in doing that, we don't leverage the full potential of either one. This series aims to help you fall in love with your own soul so that you can live your most fulfilling and successful life. On today's episode, I'll be talking with an entrepreneur who is a life coach, hypnotherapist, and the host of the Art of Being Human podcast, and that's H-Y-O-U-M-A-N. But first. In every episode, I offer a tip around abundance and your spiritual journey. Today's tip is all about giving your money a home, literally, in your wallet. If you are in a space where you can, go ahead and pull out your wallet and take a look. Fair warning, I'm about to get a little bit woo on you. Your wallet is a literal house, and it's a transit station for your money. If you're listening to this, I already know you're an ethical person who does beautiful things in the world with your money, and it should have a beautiful place to live. This is your invitation to make sure your wallet gets freed from old receipts, business cards that need to be filed or trashed, and library cards from your junior high school days. I really recommend getting a wallet that you love. In true confession, I have a collection of wallets that I love, and I adore vintage wallets, and I search for them, and I collect them and switch them out. I'm the queen of keeping old receipts in my wallet, and if you're like me, you just need to clean them out about once a week. Make sure your wallet is someplace you'd like to be if you were money. And lastly, send your wallets a little love. I know it's a little woo and a little goofy, but really, the abundance coming to you needs to know that it's coming to a fun and loving place. And that begins with something as simple as your wallet and letting the ripple effect go out from there. My guest today is Meg Hepner. Meg is the founder of Real Excellent Living. Meg coaches women to take control of their lives by working from the inside out. I had the pleasure of being on Meg's awesome podcast, The Art of Being Human, and she was even on my sister podcast, Heretic Happy Hour. After every conversation, I just want it to go on and on and on, and I know that you're going to love Meg's amazing energy. Welcome to the show, Meg. I am so happy to be here, and I have to tell you, I felt the same way. I feel like every time we meet. I'm like, wait, that went too fast. I'd like to talk more. (laughs) I so agree. So Meg, I'm curious, did anything resonate with you in today's tip on the topic of your wallet? You know, it's, I was listening to you and I was kind of giggling to myself because I'm like, girl, you're speaking my language. I am one of those people that my wallet is a mess. There's a gazillion things in there. And for me, and I don't know if you can relate to this or if your listeners can relate to this, but there is energy in that and I get bogged down. Yeah, I get bogged down when I see that and I start to, maybe this is overstating it, but I feel like there's a negativity attached to it. And I feel like that actually about my entire house. The more stuff comes in, the more things get piled on top of each other. I start to feel claustrophobic, like I'm I'm almost being choked and I need to just get rid of, get rid of, get rid of and make a beautiful space for what I actually want so that I can enjoy the things that I have. And the word that kept coming up for me when you were talking was this idea of respect. And I know sometimes that's not a super popular word because we look at it kind of like, uh, you know, like respect the patriarchy or, you know, whatever, like it kind of isn't a real buzzword in this day and age. But when you respect what you've been given, you treat it differently and you honor it and you bring it into the sacred. 
And so to me, that was the word. It's like, respect the gifts that you receive, respect them and treat them the way that they deserve to be treated. And in that, you will keep yourself in that sacred space where how you're using your money is a reflection of who you are, what you value, and the impact that you actually want to have in the world. Yeah, absolutely. I love that. And you know, your wallet can literally be a $5 wallet, but if you love it and keep it nice and neat and organized, that energy will still be there. And I'm a bit of an environmentalist and I love keeping things until they do not work until there's two threads left and then I have to get rid of them. So for me, keeping something very old or buying vintage is a way of respecting the environment and the earth and reusing and recycling. And I love it. And so I bring that energy into my wallet energy as well. One thing I'm trying to get better at is keeping my bills actually neat and in order. My husband was a bank teller 30 years ago. And so he naturally does it. He puts them all in order. And sometimes he'll look at mine askew and be a little bit aghast. (laughs) So I tried to do that so I know what's in there. It's funny that you say that because um, every year during tax time, my husband will come up with the receipts and he has them in nice envelopes labeled and everything is right. And he's like, Meg, could I have all your receipts? And I'm like, basically carrying a garbage bag and dumping it onto the table. Here you go, honey. And he's like, oh my word, how do you run a business? So it's one of those things that like, I'm constantly, constantly working on. But you know, I feel like there is such a direct correlation for myself. Anyway, this is what I have found for myself. How I deal with my resources and how I feel about myself are very intimately connected. And I find that when I am in a space where I am really feeling good about myself, when I feel like, man, I am in alignment, I'm feeling worthy. I find that I treat my resources much, much different. And actually how I treat my resources, something as simple as a wallet or how I have my money and my receipts in a wallet can be an indicator to me as to how I'm doing, right? Like if they're all scrunched in there, I'm like, yeah, I'm going too fast. I'm, you know, trying to do too much and I'm not taking the time I need to process the things in my life. I got to slow down. Chances are I'm headed for a mistake, right? Um, If I look at something like my wallet and go, oh, okay, I took the time, you know, to put the change in the right space or, you know, to put my receipts in the nice little slot that they belong in. I'm also going, okay, I'm taking my time. I remember Richard Rohr once said, how you brush your teeth is how you do everything or something really kind of funny like that. And the next day I was like, okay, I'm going to watch how I brush my teeth. And I'm like, oh, I have a lot to learn. (laughs) (laughs) Apparently I rush through everything and I try to get to the next thing really quickly. (laughs) Right. And you're probably thinking about something else. I know I do too. So yeah, part of being human as you coach all of us uh, in doing so. (laughs) The question I ask every guest is, what word or words do you currently use when referring to whatever it is that you consider to be the divine? Man, that changes daily. What is it today? You know, I used the word God for the first time the other day. Not for the first time, but for the first time in a long time. A long time. And it was a very interesting feeling because I have been using divine. I have been using source. I have been using like Christ consciousness, but the other day I noticed God came out of my mouth and I went, huh, isn't that interesting? Because I'd kind of given up using that word just due to how many triggers that word kind of set off. And I thought to myself, oh, I'm curious if this means I'm redeeming the word to myself. I wonder if I've given myself enough time and enough space to look at that word and make it my own instead of making it what it was. So I normally use the divine or the universe, um, but I do have to confess, God slipped out the other day and I thought, huh, kind of (laughs) cool. Yeah, how did it feel? You know, oh, what is that movie? What is that movie? It came out several years ago. It's a kid's movie. It's about all the different feelings and the lesson at the end of the movie. Inside Out. Inside Out, yeah. The lesson at the end of the movie was you can feel two things at once. A memory can be both happy and sad. And I think it felt, a part of me felt heavy when I used the word, like it felt like a little bit of a blanket. Um, But a part of me also felt like a little bit of a homecoming, like, oh, hello, you know, hello, old friend. And so it was a mixture. I think I'm going to take a break and step back from the word again for a little while. 
um, and see when it slips out next. But it was two very sort of strong emotions, a little bit of heaviness, but also a little bit of comfort. So it'll be interesting to see which direction that kind of takes in the future. But that leads so perfectly to the next question, which is, can you tell us a little bit about your religious or spiritual upbringing? Yeah, for sure. I grew up as a Mennonite. Um, so that means really conservative, fundamental Christian. It is not evangelical. So there's no like bands, um, you know, playing on stage, no waving of the hands. I'm talking women on one side of the church, men on the other side of the church, no organs, anything like that. I have never seen a person come into that church wearing a pair of pants. If you're a woman, men, men wear pants. <laughs> <laughs> If you're a married woman, you will be wearing a head covering. If you're not a married woman, then the head covering isn't required. No makeup, no earrings, no tattoos, lighter clothing for the younger girls, darker clothing for the mothers. Like, yeah, very, very, very strict. Were the services in German? Yes. When I grew up, the services were in German. And then, I mean, I don't know what, something shifted in the universe. And all of a sudden, they split them half and half where you could do a half of the sermon in German and then the last half, that last 15 minutes were in English. How long were the sermons? An hour. Oh, that's yeah. long. Yeah, you were in church an hour and a half because you would do the intro, the intro. <laughs> that's probably not the right language. <laughs> you would do the intro, you would do some singing, you would do a half an hour of German, you'd do a couple of kneelings, then you'd do 15 minutes in English. And then you do some singing and then you do the closing remarks. So a good hour okay. and a half. Yeah. Yeah. And just for listeners who may not be familiar with Mennonites, there, there's lots of different kinds of Mennonites. So I've interacted a lot with the progressive kind of modern Mennonites. I'm sure there's a better word than that, but who do not distinguish themselves through dress or through technology. But maybe you could distinguish the similarities and differences between the kind of Mennonite that you were growing up and the Amish, which more people will be familiar with. Yeah, for sure. And people get that mixed up quite a bit because there is a big Mennonite community around the Amish. So they live in similar areas there in Pennsylvania, I think it is. And so they often do get mistaken for each other. One of the things about the type of Mennonite that I was is like you said, we were very distinguished by the language we spoke, by the way that we dressed, and by the way that we used technology. We also did not historically get educated by the government. We had our own education system. So that oh, okay. is very much an old order or an old colony Mennonite. That's kind of what those were considered. And then those people that had stayed in Canada for a majority of the time because my Mennonites come from Mexico or Bolivia or Argentina, very Central or South American Mennonites are more conservative. And then you have the North American Mennonites who are a little bit more liberal. Those are the ones that, you know, you wouldn't know just by looking at them. They speak English, but they do adult baptism. Pacifism is very, very strong for them. They don't normally love to be in government, et cetera, et cetera. But there is a big difference if you look at a more liberal Mennonite, you might think like Protestant, evangelical. If you have any kind of connection with that, it would look somewhat similar to that. Um, but if you go with an old colony Mennonite, it's like night and day. Oh, but the question was, how is that different than the Amish? The Amish and the Mennonites in South America would probably be very, very, very similar. Actually, they would be extremely hard to distinguish because South American Mennonites don't have running water, they don't have electricity, et cetera, et cetera. Whereas Mennonites maybe that you'd be more familiar with, even old colony Mennonites that you find out here, the difference is they can drive vehicles, they can have cell phones, they can have electricity, they would not have television, but they're a little bit more integrated into the society, I guess, than Amish would be. Amish are very, very separate. With Mennonites, there's a little bit more integration. I think that's very helpful. And actually, I have a story that I would love to share, and we'll see if this can fit in. About 10 years ago, I was driving from where I lived at the time in Chico, California, which is at the northern end of the agricultural valley to the Bay Area. My memory fails me. I think I was going to actually meet with my ordination committee. And I was just, there's about 10,000 ways you could get there. You can go all kind of highway interstate or you can go back roads. I was going to go just interstate the whole way. And then I made this impulse decision at a red light. And I thought, I'm going to go left here and take this back road. I'd never taken it. And about 15 minutes later, I passed something and out, out of the corner of my eye. And then I thought, 
what was that? And it finally registered with me. That was a person. And there was a person lying on the side of the road. And I had a horrible cell service at the time. I was in the middle of kind of nowhere. And so I wheeled around and went back. And sure enough, there was someone who was lying on the side of the road. I was the only person there and my cell phone didn't work, didn't have service. And I just thought, oh my gosh, what am I going to do? I don't, I don't have medical training. He was obviously very, very hurt. And he was awake. He was conscious, but struggling. And I just said, you know, I'm here. I'm not leaving you until help arrives. Like we're not, we're going to get help for you. Fortunately, just then someone else, a woman drove up and she had seen him, didn't have cell service and went far enough away to get cell service and then came back. So we're with him. It's not a well-traveled road. People are slowly gathering. All of a sudden, this Mennonite community turns out they were all on their way to church for evening church. And it was in kind of, an, oh, I don't know what the official name is, old order. You know, all the women, just like you described in dark clothes and bonnets. The men all knew exactly what to do. They were all EMT trained. Every man there was an EMT. And they got him situated. They got him on a board. He was really, really hurt. So I'm with one of the women and we're just, we're just looking on at this point in time. And she has all of her children in the back of her uh, back of a truck. Well, the man had a dog with him and the dog was loose and running around terrified in the middle of this road. And he lodged himself underneath her tire. And I said, ma'am, you know, please don't move because there's a dog underneath your tire. She was like, oh, I'll help you get the dog. So the two of us, I'm chasing the dog. She's chasing me. The dog wants nothing to do with this and is terrified. It was a scene from a comedy, truly. But we finally got the dog situated. I think police officer got it, put it, put the dog in his vehicle. And then her children are all standing outside with us. And they said, mom, mom, we're on our way to church. Are we still going to church? And I, I just looked at them. I'm on my way to an ordination committee. And you know, I know that they don't ordain women. And I said, I think that you're having church right now. And she looked at me and she was like, that's exactly right. We are having church right now and helping this individual. So it was a lovely interaction that I wouldn't normally have. Oh, that's beautiful. First of all, that story went from like absolutely terrifying. And I'm so glad it got to a good end, at least like that there was help. But what you describe is exactly Mennonites, like salt of the earth, good people will learn trades that will help their community. Very, very, very community oriented. very good Samaritan orientated. Like, I honestly think a lot of the values that I take for granted that other people are struggling for were created because I was a Mennonite, like care for the underdog, look out for the orphan, the widow and the prisoner, you know, like um, really trying to be of benefit and of service to your community. All of those things were just inbred in me. I really didn't have to create them. It was just the example everywhere. For most people, if they are in need, having a Mennonite come to help, yeah, you're going to be okay, <laughs> especially a group of Mennonites. <laughs> right. Well, you definitely mentioned trigger with the word God and that maybe that's going to be reclaimed for you. So maybe just tell us a little bit about what it was like to depart from your Mennonite upbringing and, and where that brings you to where you are now. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So like with everything, there is the benign and the hostile, right? So the benign side of being a Mennonite is that it's a very lovely community. You know, you you have all these resources at your fingertips. You have, you know, a very loving, safe space to grow up. The more hostile side is that it's such a strong community that it excludes everybody else. So although Mennonites will be very, very kind to you, you are most certainly not a Mennonite if you're not a Mennonite. <laughs> like, do you know what I mean? And so I remember the very first time when we had moved, we grew up in a small farming community. And when we moved to the big bad city, I was getting a babysitter for my sons. I have two children, but back then they still needed a babysitter. And I remember saying to one of my family members, well, I found a sitter in the city. Like, I'm, I'm so happy. And the first question was, but are they a Mennonite? And I had to say, well, no, they're not. And they were like, well, then how do you know that you can trust them? And it was like, that was sort of the prevailing mindset. There's insiders and there's outsiders. And if you're a Mennonite, you're an insider. And if you're anybody else, you're an outsider. And so you can also imagine that that bred a lot of racism, a lot of kind of contempt for anyone that wasn't living your lifestyle and that was making very different choices. And that began to sit very, very, very uncomfortably for me. And also, I'm a little bit of an outspoken person. I tend to have ideas and thoughts. And that isn't necessarily super encouraged because I am, after all, a woman. So I should be sewing or cooking or cleaning. And so having thoughts was not the highest value you can place on a woman. 
And so that didn't sit right after a while. And we did what a lot of people do when the type of faith they have doesn't work. We pendulum swinged entirely the different way. (laughs) So we went from conservative Mennonites to the prosperity gospel, like Jesus just wants good for you. And there's like a big band and a smoke show in front of the church and there's dancing and all this kind of stuff. And uh, very quickly, we figured out that same thing, different packaging. And so that was super uncomfortable because at first we thought like, oh, this is how faith is meant to be lived in abundance and in all this great stuff. And then all of a sudden we went, oh no, there's still a belief system that you have to adhere to that's very, very strict. There's still roles that you must play. It's not the open space we thought it was. And we ended up moving across country and uh, the dark night of the soul began. And so we started to deconstruct everything. And in that deconstruction, pulled out everything we'd ever been taught about God, threw it on the table and went, it's all up for questioning. It's all up to be examined and looked at. And then um, sort of built something from there uh, that was precious and beautiful and life-giving for us. So that's kind of the story. And so we went from God being that kind of angry God up in the sky, making sure that you weren't going to, you know, do the wrong thing to just being very, very in love with Jesus and how he lived in the world. And that actually now is the biggest influence in everything I do. And even in the way that I run my business, right? I'm constantly thinking, if Jesus had an influence on this, what would it look like? What would my marketing be? You know, if I had the filter of Jesus on, what would my pricing situation be if I had the filter of Jesus on? What would I do with the rewards and the payments that I get if I had the filter of Jesus on? And so now I feel like it's a very, it's a very personal relationship. And I kind of even don't like that phrasing. I have a personal relationship with Jesus. Yeah, that can be twisted. That can be twisted, but it can also be authentic. Yeah. So I feel like you are taking the phrase, those of us of a certain age and of a certain kind of religious upbringing will be really familiar with this, WWJD, or what would (laughs) Jesus do? But yeah, what would your Jesus lens enable you to do? Well, it's so fascinating because for me, I see a lot of people sort of struggling with what like the culture tells us so much, right? Like if you're in business and you go to someone and you say, well, how do I market? And they'll go, oh, you should market like this and you should market like that. And then you go somewhere else and they tell you something and it can all get really, really confusing. Because for myself, the lens of Jesus is is the lens that I try to use most often. When someone says, hey, market yourself as an expert, I go, "Mm, can't because I don't respect persons, right? So that doesn't work for me. Because for me, Jesus went, you don't give the the uh, a preferred seat to a rich person, right? You you're equals, you're equal. So I don't necessarily consider myself an expert or a guru, which is the place a lot of people go. Like, oh, you need to be an expert at something. That's how you sell yourself, right? I also don't like when I hear people go, oh, you know what? You should market yourself by probing someone's pain. I'm like, mm, no, I don't want to probe someone's pain. That doesn't feel authentic to me. I want to create this experience of being fueled by love. And love means what am I working towards, not what am I getting away from? Because I wear this view, a lot of the stuff that the world tries to sell me is done. Like I I just don't even have to deal with it. Or even this idea of people are like, you need to have this real professional look and you need to you know, look like you have all your stuff together and you need to look like you, you know, are someone, this is what people will say. You have to look like someone people would want to follow. And then I remember the description of Jesus was there was nothing about him that was attractive that would have made people want to follow him, right? So then when, you know, you're supposed to get on stage and people are like, ooh, wear this and wear that. I'm like, "Mm, yeah, you know what though? That's not authentic to me. Having my hair blown out and my nails done, that's not authentic to me. I don't want to look, act, or be that way because that is not the type of person that I'm trying to attract. And that's not the type of world that I'm trying to create, right? Like I want to create a world that its main values are love and grace and forgiveness and not hierarchy, meritocracy, and performance, right? So then when I know those values, which I get off of Jesus, I go, then I'm living those values, and I'm making decisions based on those values, and I'm running my business based on those values, 
And I'm not allowing the world to tell me, yeah, 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 but remember, there has to be a hierarchy, so you must be an expert. There has to be meritocracy, so you have to really tell people, you know, who's all applauding you? Have you been in magazines? Have you been on podcasts? Have you, like, really just spew that out to the world? Or, you know, performance, like, make sure you sound a certain way. I'm like, you know what? I'm a human being who wants to walk with human beings. I'm a human being that goes, I'm willing to get into the messy with you. And that's my message to the world. And that's how I'm going to run my business. And if that isn't good enough, then that just means you're not my market. Because there are people looking for an authentic experience with another human being. And that's what I'm willing to offer. Did that answer your question? I think I went on a tangent. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Hopefully that was an That's okay. That's okay. (laughs) Lovely. Well, you know, speaking of business and running a business, I'm curious. Have your spiritual or religious beliefs ever influenced the way you think or feel about money and abundance? Yeah, big time. This is actually one that's in progress for me. So this is one that I'm working on right now for my entire life. I don't know why, but I've never wanted to be rich for a lack of a better way of saying it. Like, do you know, some people have these goals. I want to make this and this much, or, you know, I want to reach this income point or whatever, I have no motivation for it. Like I live a minimalistic lifestyle. I'm like you where I like to reuse things that have previously been used. I don't upgrade right away. Like I just don't do those things. And so what that's really allowed me to do is focus more on impact instead of going like, what is my bottom line? So a lot of what I've done now is like my work is based on a sliding scale, right? Like It's more pay what you can afford rather than how much more money can I make this year than last year? Because I just, I always feel like I have enough. And if this year I have to have less, then I have less this year, but it's still enough. Like beans today, steak tomorrow, whatever, you know, steak today, beans tomorrow. Like, I don't know. Like, I just, I don't know. Maybe that's a Mennonite thing. (laughs) I don't know. Meg and I have pretty different philosophies on client pricing and tuition. Where Meg has a sliding scale for everything, I have pretty firm pricing for my services, although I do offer sliding scales a few times a year for select programs. Neither one is better than the other, but it's interesting that we agree on one thing in particular, freedom. Meg talked about the freedom she felt when she left her Mennonite past, but also felt free to build her own spiritual future. Freedom is a core value of mine because fundamentally, I believe that God is a God of choice and gives us freedom to choose as we will. The universe will let us royally screw things up if we decide to, and the universe will also honor our desire to put our lives together again. The same goes for the human race, and this is one reason that I believe the world can sometimes be messed up. We have the freedom to do so, but we also have the freedom as humans to make the world incredible. Freedom is a value that I studied in my scholarship. My entire dissertation was about how I believe the Apostle Paul encouraged freedom for early enslaved Christians. When we value freedom for others, we also value it for ourselves. And this is its own kind of abundance. When we experience freedom in our entrepreneurship, it empowers us to be creative, to charge our worth, and to supercharge our abundance. While a very different philosophy than mine, Meg's sliding scale value strikes me as her own personal freedom. So I asked her if this was in alignment with her understanding of who Jesus was and is, because she is led by spirit. You know what? I, and this is what I think it means when like they talk about following Jesus gives you this sense of freedom, right? There's freedom in the cross or whatever people say. I'm like, oh, I get that. Like, I get that. Because if you walk into a room, the first thing people do is try to find where they are in the hierarchy, right? It's a beautiful thing to be able to walk into a room and go, I don't care. And whatever your judgments are, I don't care either. You know what I mean? And it's like, that's, that's pure freedom. And it's like, wow, I will go after this way of living until the day I die. Like this is worth forsaking everything for because you can literally sit there and go, it really doesn't matter. Which means if you're in business, it doesn't scare you to go up to someone and go like, hey, I'd love to speak at your event because if they say no, they're just a person. And so you literally can become fearless. Now that's not to say like I walk around going, ha ha ha, 
oh, you know, I'm in this little blissful land. No, I have an ego. It pops up, but I can soothe my ego with reminding myself of my own values and going like, no, no, it's okay, little ego. You just go sit back in your chair. Remember, we value this. And that's a beautiful yeah. way to live for me personally. Well, and that fearlessness, it's also freed me to charge the higher prices. Mm. So it kind of goes both yeah. ways. Yeah. Because that there's also a freedom in saying the value of this particular thing that I can do is actually this. And it doesn't mean that if someone can't sign on that they're a bad person or that I'm a bad person or that there's scarcity or urgency. I, I just had a conversation with someone earlier. She said, okay, if I don't decide right now, what's the, what's the consequence? I said, there is no consequence. You can, you can join next week. That's why I don't operate under trying to scare you into saying I'm going to charge you five times as much if you can't make a choice right now. But that freedom, it also gives me the freedom to offer sliding scale opportunities when something's really important. Well, you know, here's the interesting thing. To some people, charging more is the leverage they need because there is a dominant thinking in our culture that if we charge more, it's worth more. I actually had someone tell me this the other day. They went, I was so offended that they called it affordable flooring that I chose the more costly flooring. <laughs> I'm just like, that's so cute. She's like, that word, I don't buy what's affordable. I buy premium. I'm like, yeah, great. Awesome. I'm so glad they had that option for you because you now feel really, really good and comfortable about the floor that you have. Wonderful. That worked for her. And so to right. me, I, I think 100%, it can go both ways. Yeah, I love that. So Meg, as an out-of-the-box Christian myself, I'm always interested in learning more about the practices of those of us who are on the progressive side of Christianity. And I was fascinated to learn that you're also a hypnotherapist. Can you tell us a little more about that and how you use that in your coaching business? Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, our subconscious doesn't forget anything, right? Like if you look at all the information that we take in in a day, it needs to be stored somewhere and it can't be stored in our consciousness. So our subconscious, it keeps all of that information and then it only filters out into our consciousness what we can actually handle. And so there is so much to mind in the subconscious, things that you can use to empower you, patterns it's creating that disempower you and different ways of being that you can make connections with that in your conscious mind, you, not, you could, but it would take you forever right? Like, cause you have to do the hard work of like changing the way that you think consciously. That's really, really hard. If you can lay down and relax your brain, get it into that beautiful, relaxed theta state and have someone pull out from there what you need or implant in there what you need. It's just a quicker way of getting the work done. I always say the very, very best you can do is do hypnotherapy and coaching at the same time. Like having those two things happen is amazing. I'm a big fan of like murder mystery books. And so sometimes when I can't sleep, I'll pop in a murder mystery book and it'll help me sleep like an audio. And this morning I woke up and I had an elevated heart rate and I was having just like these weird thoughts. And I thought, what is going on? Like, why am I anxious? And then I was like, what the heck did I listen to last night? And I was going back over like the different chapters. I'm like, Oh, I was listening to like mayhem and murder all night. Like, no wonder I woke up this morning going, I hope everything's going to be okay today. <laughs> you know, like, yeah, Meg, you know, you just put a bunch of crap into your subconscious and it fed it back to you. So there is so much power in diving into the subconscious. And if you are running a pattern, like if you have ever asked yourself, I don't know why I do that, trust me, the answer is hidden in your subconscious. Your consciousness is just not allowed to see it, right? That's where we hold all our blind spots. That's where we hold a lot of the shadow that we don't want to acknowledge all back there in the subconscious. And if you can find a really safe and beautiful way to dive into that, let some of that stuff out and implant some better stuff, just makes the whole journey a lot easier. So do you use hypnosis with individual clients or in groups or both? Both. Honestly, you can do it individually, which is fantastic because then we can curate things to exactly what you want to really make a difference in your life on. Like if you're looking to you know, lose weight or overcome a fear or whatever, we can do that. But you can also like, let's say you struggle from anxiety, you can go to group hypnosis for that. That's fantastic. Because chances are, 
Um, you know, if you have generalized anxiety, the hypnotherapist will have a session that's dedicated to that. And it will be, it will be general enough, but specific enough that you're going to get massive benefits. So if someone listening has ever thought of, oh, I should, either one is fantastic. It just depends on specifically what you're going for. What would you say has been your biggest challenge as an entrepreneur? I think my biggest challenge in the past has been really identifying my values. And then the biggest challenge currently is staying consistent with my values, regardless of the other voices that are convinced that I should be living by different values, if that makes sense. So I'll give the same example that's kind of been filtering through this whole podcast is this idea of an expert. In my industry, becoming an expert is massively important. You really need to let people know where your expertise are and what you're fantastic at, and you should be advertised as such. Meg is an expert in, you know, and I don't like it. I'm not going to do it because I want to create a world where we stop the glorification of the human being because we glorify human beings like Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos or whatever. We glorify them and then we sanitize them so that they're godlike to us. And then we get tricked into thinking we could be like them too. And then when our real life experience doesn't emulate that, we think there's something wrong with us and there isn't. They have just as many crap problems as we have. They have just as many, you know, struggles and and stuff as we have, but we sanitize it. And then when our life doesn't look like theirs, we go, oh, I must be wrong. And then we go, well, who can help me be right then? And then we get on this frantic treadmill of trying to find somebody else who has the answers so that we can finally be like someone we've glorified. I don't like it and I'm not going to live by it and I'm not going to do it. (laughs) I'm going to tell you straight up, I'm a human being. Some days are fantastic and I have my shit together and some days are shit and I got nothing together. And that's okay because that's probably your life too. But what I do know is how to walk with you while you're going through that. I know how to realign you to your highest self. And that's what I will do for you consistently and constantly. I can help you pull back the veil, but you will do your own seeing. I will not tell you what to see. Right. You're empowering people to be their own best guide. Yeah. Does your spirituality affect that? I feel like that isn't a result of my spirituality. I don't think I would be that way in the world if I didn't hold my spirituality the way I did. What do you think of when I say being in alignment? And what does that mean to you? Oh, wow. That's a great question. To me, I think being in alignment is being aware of what's important to you or what your values are, being aware of what actions are in alignment with that value, and then living them out consistently. So to me, I think like people will very often mistake their aspirational values for their real values, right? And then when you say to someone, so what is an action that proves you have that value? We just go blank faced because we don't know. And then we don't consistently act in a way that we really want to act, right? Like if somebody says, my highest value is family, but they're working constantly and they're missing all of their family events and et cetera, et cetera, because they're so busy working, then family is an aspirational value to you, but it's not your real value right? Success is your real value or work is your real value or whatever it is that you're getting from work is your real value. And so then what happens is people go, I say family is um, my value. I don't live like it and therefore I'm not in alignment. And so I'm confused about why I'm not happy because I have my values in order, don't I? Right? But it's really going, there's a connection between what you value and what you do. And sometimes we have to face a very, very, very hard truth that our actions actually are telling us we have a completely different value. And I'll give you an example, and I hope that this is an okay example. I, I don't want to give an example that gets people you know, up in arms, but this was a big discussion in our house, and it was when um, the abortion rights changed in the U.S. And I had to say, what are my values with the abortion rights? And I said, by default, I'm pro-choice because my actions don't prove that I'm pro-life. 
So I have to be pro-choice. Like there's no really other option for me because I don't take enough action to prolong life in areas that I could really say I'm so pro-life that I have a dog in this fight. I don't have a dog in the fight. By default, I'm pro-choice. Um, I'm not adopting children. I'm not counseling at abortion clinics. I'm not doing all of the things that would prove that I'm pro-life. So I really had to say to myself, what are my actions, right? What are my actions? And sometimes I'm not pro-life. Have you ever had this really, oh, maybe people think it's a dark thought, but have you ever like visited a grandparent at a nursing home and gone, I just wish they could go. Like, it's just their time. I wish they could go, right? Some people feel very dark about that or uncomfortable about that. But in those moments, we're pro-death. We're okay if that person dies, right? And so we're never completely pro-life. And so then I have to be pro-choice by default. And we really had that discussion as a family, what are we? And then we had to go like, what are the actions? Because if we were pro-life, if we honestly thought that there were babies that were being killed and that that was extremely wrong, then we had better get up off of our asses and do something about it, right? But we're not. So then you have to know what you really believe and then claim that and go with that. If you want to know your values, watch your actions. Yeah. Your actions and your bank account. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Your bank account will support your values. Yeah. Where you are voting with your dollar every day. You are using your dollar to prove your values every day. Yeah, absolutely. I love that. That's beautiful. What does it feel like for you when you're out of alignment? Well, that's a really great question. The first thing that came into my mind was itchy or twitchy. (laughs) Like I feel like a crawling in my skin. It's like I feel itchy. I know I'm out of alignment when I start to feel superior. When I start to go, oh, I know something. I go, oh, I'm not in alignment because I'm not viewing us as equals anymore. I'm taking on a very unhealthy significance, right? So like if I'm going for a walk with my husband, we're talking about my mom's poor behavior. And I'm starting to go, yeah, I don't know why she's like that. And I start to feel myself slide into this. I know better. I'm more significant. If only she'd do things my way. I go, I'm out of alignment. This is such BS. Like, let me pull myself back into, can I be understanding? Now, it doesn't mean I put up with someone's poor behavior, but it does mean that I understand and I'm compassionate and I'm still holding you to a higher standard, but I'm not doing it from a place of superiority. Like I know better which tends to be my default. I remember being about eight or nine years old and crying to my brother and my brother saying, why are you crying? And I said, life would be so much easier if everyone would just do what I told them to do. (laughs) (laughs) Isn't that the truth? Yes. (laughs) Well, so your work focuses on helping women particularly. What are the challenges that you see women facing today that makes that audience really important to you? And just tell us what drives your passion for coaching women. Yeah, you know, it's such an interesting thing. Um, Women, in my opinion, have a very low sense of self-worth and yet their skill set is exactly what our world needs right now. And so there's a supply and demand that's not being met. (laughs) Like women have this amazing ability to make more and to make sure that those who need have what they need. And in our world, we need that so desperately, but women tend to view themselves in such a negative way. They don't see their own self-worth. They don't appreciate their own skills enough to be able to meet the demands and to take on the fights that we need to take on in order to make the world a more beautiful place, right? And so for me, I want to create an environment where women can see what's actually happening to them, where they're being sort of sold a load of goods as to who they're meant to be and who they're supposed to be that's actually damaging them from making the impact that they want to make. And then I want women to see their own natural abilities and their own natural worth so that they can go out and use their strengths. You know how in the movies, there's always the hero and he's always a man. And then there's always some poor woman who's like, what shall we do? And the man is just like, I know what to do, babe. I'll take care of everything. And she's just like, my hero. I have yet to meet a woman like that in real life. If you gave her a scenario that she wouldn't go, oh, I know what to do. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. Because that's how women are. Like 
we are natural sort of born solution makers, right? Like if you bring me ingredients, I will make you a meal. If you buy me a house, I will make you a home, right? If you bring me something, I will create more from it. And when I create more from it, there will be enough for everyone. That's how women are. But we keep ourselves so small and we buy the BS that our culture tells us that we need to look a certain way, that our body needs to be a certain way, that we need to show up in a certain way, that we self-sabotage our own ability to make the world a more beautiful place. And so my whole like driving force is to go, I want women to be empowered, to call BS on the things that need to be called BS on, and then to go, and here's the more beautiful world we can create and then get busy creating it right? Like that's why we do the work of healing ourselves because there's more work out there. We heal ourselves so that we can go in an impassioned and beautiful and empowered way to make our communities better because there are people who are suffering. There are people who are seriously caught in poverty, in abuse, in these awful circumstances that we as women would be able to combat if we were empowered. So my whole thing is heal up, get empowered, and then we got to get out there and make the difference that we need to make. I could not agree more with Meg's assessment and her mission. When we raise up women and girls, we raise up the whole world. One way I witness women disempowering themselves is by asking questions that place their self-worth in the hands of others. Another way of saying this is that when women believe their own opinion is not worthy all by itself, without having the agreement of others, they disempower themselves. For instance, Women sometimes ask me, how do I get my husband to agree with me? Or what if my parents call, they don't like what I'm doing with my spiritual journey? Or can I tell others that I'm using Oracle cards? It's completely understandable how we get here. Women are socialized to please, but women's own opinions and spiritual journeys are just fine without the approval of anyone. When women step into their own power, especially on a spiritual journey, they will be their own authority and the approval of anyone else just won't matter. Getting to that place though, takes a lot of nurture, it takes a lot of support and practice. And that is something that I help women do with tons of spiritual tools and reflection. So I asked Meg how she thinks women can help each other in reaching that level of empowerment that allows them to move through the world confidently and assertively. Yeah, my biggest thing, women, we can help each other by really pointing out each other's good and making sure that the other woman receives it, right? Because here's what we do as women. Someone will say, oh my God, you're so good at that. And you go, no, not me. And you go, no, 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 receive what I just gave you. You're very good at that. And have that woman go, okay, I receive that right? Instead of following that pattern that we have of kind of like dismissing our talents or dismissing our abilities or dismissing the beautiful things that we create, say them and receive them. Allow yourself to receive the gifts people are giving you because we need to empower one another. And this old paradigm of like, no, 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 not me. We need to go, oh, thank you so much. I worked really hard on that. And I appreciate that you saw that. And interestingly, in so many Christian circles, I'll hear men and women, but a lot of women especially say, oh no, it's not me. It's all God. It's all God. It's all God. And I'll think, but you said yes. You could have easily said no. God and you are working together to do this, you know, especially energy healers, especially people providing space for others. So my recipe for this that I'll offer to anyone listening is when someone compliments you, notices something you've done in the world, all you have to say is, thank you. I'm flattered. That covers everything. It's a great starting point for those who find it difficult to receive praise. I love that. And you want to think of yourself as a co-creator with God, right? Right. You're co-creating. We're not puppets. Yeah, I'm working on my relationship with God and I'm letting him move through me. It's a beautiful thing. And I'm consistently saying yes to this so that God can have an impact in the world. Fantastic. Take that in. Absolutely. Well, before we wrap up, Meg, do you have any advice you'd like to share with our listeners? Maybe advice is not the right word for you as the (laughs) non-expert. Do you have any wisdom you would like to share with our listeners? Yeah. You know what? Slow down. If I had a bullhorn and was on the top of the highest buildings yelling it off so everyone could hear me, I would say slow down because you can't do anything if you're going so fast. 
when you're going so fast, you're just in stimulus and response, stimulus and response. You're not thinking. You got to slow down so that you can actually connect to the divine, especially if you're a woman, right? Like you think about it, the divine is held in the pause. If you don't pause, no wonder your connection with the divine feels fragmented because we're not meant to go from stimulus to reaction. We're meant to go from stimulus to pause to reaction because it's in the pause where you find creativity, where you find all of the resources that you need. If you don't make space for it, they're not there. And you're going to find yourself going in circles, right? You're going to go, why am I dealing with the same problem that I did 10 years ago? Why am I still just as upset about this as I was 15 years ago? Why is my marriage not any better? Even though we've been married for 20 years, we should be fine. Like we should have been worked through this. You're going to find yourself spinning in circles because you need to pause, especially like I said with women. Because if you think about women and feminine energy is like we get implanted with an idea that idea needs a gestation period, and then we give birth to something new. If you squish that so there's no opportunity for, for anything to be birthed inside of you, no creativity, no resources, you're going to find yourself doing something that doesn't feel in, in alignment. So that's a very long answer, but like slow down. God is found in the pause. You know, source, divine, whatever is found in the pause. You don't have to get to every game or, you know, do all these activities. Slow down and teach your kids to slow down. You don't have to go so fast. This is so amazing, Meg. Thank you so much for being here. What's the best way for people to find you? I'm super easy to find. If you just go www.meghepner.com, you're going to find me. It's going to be simple. Everything is there. Um, my podcast is there. All the events that I host are there. Um, different ways to connect with me. They're all on there. What I am not on is social media other than Facebook. So if you look for me on Facebook, you'll also be able to find me. And that's just under Meg Hepner as well. And that's H-E-P-P-N-E-R. Yeah, perfect. I'm Katie Valentine, and you've been listening to Soul Savvy Business. Soul Savvy Business is part of the Miracy FM podcast network, which also includes such shows as Just Between Coaches and Once Upon a Business. This episode was produced by Cynthia Lamb, I wrote this episode with Melissa Deal and Cynthia. Melissa assembled the episode. Danny Eney is our executive producer and post-production was by Post Office Sound. To make sure you don't miss any great episodes coming up on Soul Savvy Business, follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. If you like the show, please give us a star to review. It is the best way to help us get these ideas to more people. Thanks, and I'll see you next time.